I yes. feel like I if I if I was in a car accident and I had one of those like halos on from like shattering my vertebrae and this song came on, I'd still be rocking. I'd still be doing this, trying to. Hit. I got it. I got it. Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. You all know this. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and music critics get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll talk about it, give some in-depth and I'm hopefully hopefully insightful uh, opinions on it. And at the end, we are going to vote as to whether or not it really does belong on the list, saving you time. If you have not heard the album yet, don't bother if we voted down. If you <laughs> love the album, feel validated that we have voted it on the list a second time. This week, we are going to be talking about a pretty awesome album. Just in terms of the overall packaging and the name, we got Rage Against the Machine by Rage Against the Machine. Yes. Sorry. I guess I'm showing my hand a little early here. <clears throat> Let me t- take that back. <clears throat> It's all right, Adam. It's all right. The enthusiasm <laughs> and the uh, the energy that this album puts out is somewhat undeniable. Even if you don't like this kind of music, you kind of can't deny the energy. And I just also want to mention right at the top that I think that the presentation, the packaging, and the image on the front of this album, even with like the dirty typeface on it and everything, is one of the best album covers of all time. For this particular type of album, it's the best album cover you could possibly imagine. <laughs> well, I'm not going to dispute that it's a good album cover that matches with the content. But let's just say that it's was already an extremely famous photograph that was simply <laughs> repurposed for this <laughs> borrowed. It was. It certainly was. I think it it is a bit of a mission statement though in that this is um somewhat of a protest album. So we're going to jump right in right now just really quickly to give you guys a little bit of flavor if you have not heard Rage Against the Machine before. We're going to listen to a really quick cut of the first song on their debut album, and then we're going to give ourselves a little bit of a overall impressions of the album. So without any further ado, here is the opening track on 1992's Rage Against the Machine, Bomb Track. initial impressions of this album 
Hang on, I got to put my headphones back on because I was just like slam dancing or running around my room, smashing into stuff and punching the walls. Uh, this album is remarkable. My my one little quick uh, critique, though, is this album answers the age-old question of how many noise solos can you cram into a 52-minute album? <laughs> okay. I'm not a fan of the noise solos, apparently. <laughs> yeah. uh, Phil, I think that's, jump I think on that's one of the best parts of this. <laughs> Well, Just I'll, saying, gets old. I'll, I'll help. I'll help break this down later. But uh, right, yeah, right. this 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 album rips. Uh, I'm, you know, I mean, for sake of the podcast, I will play the villain. I'll pretend that I don't like it, uh, just so we can have a little more back and forth. Uh, but this this album rips. My my, you know, we've done the hundred and forty word like tweet length explanation, and mine would definitely be, bring that shit in, all caps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, this this shit rips. Uh, bomb track specifically. Uh, if I could, if I was gonna uh, actually keep going, we'll come back to my my one critique on bomb track. Fair enough, Rob. What what are your thoughts on the album overall? It definitely rocks really hard, and I'll be the first to admit that I missed it when I was a teenager. I don't think I had rage in my head then. Something about capitalism and working life and adult life that's now beating me down. I much better understand <laughs> the rage. You identify with the message much more I wholly. do. I do. And it occurs to me on this re-listen that anger, this is such a brilliant concept for a band as well as I think much of the execution is brilliant. Anger is such a universal. And the machine is whatever you want it to be, man. It's anything. <laughs> it's not necessarily anything because Tom Morello famously did have to like... Oh, he was on Twitter recently. There was um, a bunch of like stop the steal protesters in Philadelphia who were trying to stop vote counting and wear all Trump gear and like Blue Lives Matter stuff and like very aggressively pumping, killing in the name. And Tom Rill was just like, no, 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 no. That, right. You are what, the machine. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I agree that they themselves stick closely to a political ideology and they're clear on what it means. But I think one of the signs of a true classic is how unbelievably universal it is. Because this isn't the first time that Republicans have tried to co-opt it. There was that whole thing about Paul Ryan working out, being a big Rage Against, oh, the, yeah, machine, right, right. against the Machine fan and quoting them in his tweets and Morello. <laughs> to their credit, they always try to strike it down hard yeah. when Immediately. they see it. Like, yeah. like they're yeah. Like, yeah, it's like they have like a... They have like an RSS feed. They have like a bot, right. you know, that lets them know. Scanning who mentions them. Yeah. Tom Morello is, has performed recently in front of a gigantic fuck Trump digital screen. <laughs> and there were all these kinds of people that were like, I'm so disappointed in this band. I can't believe that they're doing this. I'm never listening to them again. And it's like, what? Did you ever listen to them before? Right. What the hell did you think they were talking <laughs> this, about? This idea that, oh, now Rage Against the Machine has been politicized. <laughs> were you paying right. any attention? <laughs> To the prior I liked it when you were years. yelling at like uh, dishwashers and shit like that. But now, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So uh, I would my my tweet length review of this is this album is four minutes and forty nine seconds short of perfect. That is, uh, I think we're gonna get to my four minute and forty nine second uh, quibble with this album. But otherwise, I think that it is perfect. Let's give just a little bit of background on. The artist on this album specifically. So the band consists of Zach De La Roca, who is the vocalist, Tom Morello, who's the guitarist, Tim Comerford, who's the bassist, and Brad Wilk, who is the drummer. De La Roca, lyricist, I would say that he is the main driver of the political message behind it, but Tom Morello 
also very left wing, very political. There's an anecdote about how when he was in high school, they were doing a mock 1980 election in the school. And they had, you know, Reagan versus, I think it was like Dukakis or whoever he was going against. No, it was Reagan Carter. Carter. It was Reagan Carter. And so they were like, oh, we're going to, you know, do like a mock election. And he decided that he wanted to run another candidate. And so he started like campaigning for another candidate who was a non-existent person as an anarchist candidate and ended up getting like, you know, almost 20% of the school vote or something like that. And he's just like, basically, fuck the system. Like, the system is stupid. I can't can't abide by this two-party bullshit. So this is, uh, yeah, I think this is where they initially connected. And this is really a concept band at its heart where those two guys connected and said, oh, we totally have a similar ideology and idea of what we could do with that ideology via a band. And that instant lightning in a bottle connection there, I think, is what fueled a lot of it. Totally. And you know what actually is really interesting that I did not know is De La Roca met Tom, uh, Tim Comerford when they were in grade school. And they played together in a band that was called uh, what Juvenile Expression. They were, they met in Irvine. They were in a band in grade school together. Ended up breaking up, but when they were going to join to form Rage, was like, hey, I know this guy from grade school. It's a pretty good band. Oh player. wow! Which is kind of cool. I've always wondered sort of how that, you know, how these a little grade school protest yeah. band <laughs> <laughs> raging against the principal. <laughs> whatever <laughs> chocolate milk well so you know like de la rocha his dad was a very left-wing muralist um painted mexican-american painted lots of murals about uh you know mexican farm worker exploitation stuff like that his grandfather was a mexican revolutionary who fought in the mexican revolution but then basically became a day laborer in the u.s later in life and was working on farms like and you know one of the worst jobs you can possibly have right. like picking lettuce in the central valley basically and that colored a lot a lot of what de la roca thought about the way that the capitalist system treats people because i mean this album is a scathing indictment of like the u.s political and social systems capitalism corporatism greed complacency imperialism white supremacy and it ended up making a bunch of obscenely wealthy white captains of industry millions of dollars <laughs> all while allowing white middle-class kids to feel like they were rebelling while Against driving around in their parents right. suvs and bumping this album which is totally was my experience driving around in other people's parents cars listening to this album at full volume to be like yeah fuck the system <laughs> i'm gonna go system? to college okay i don't know right <laughs> But, uh, you know, a powerful statement um, came out when they were relatively young. Like, uh, De La Roca was 23, Wilk and Comerford were 25, and Rella was 29. So, you know, it's for, for a debut album, that hit pretty hard. My, my understanding is that from the time they formed as a band, like the first time they played together, to when the album came out, really wasn't that long. Like, maybe a year or, or something. So they, they pulled these songs together pretty quickly and then translated them into the recording and, and reached, you know, worldwide fame pretty yeah. quickly. I mean, you that. can see yeah. the first Rage Against the Machine show on YouTube. Uh, awesome. And, I mean, they sound exactly like Rage Against the Machine. It's insane. They kill. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, there's, like a, there's, there's a clarity of purpose in this band, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. They formed in 91, and this was released November of 92. And, I mean, it took off immediately. 
It w- I mean, so let's, you know, Adam, you've, you've done a thing before that I've really appreciated. So I'm going to, I'm going to hijack it a little bit for this one. We're going to do a little bit of rage against the machine by the numbers here. Yeah. Bring it on. All right. So, uh, rage against the machine, four members in this band, they were formed in 1991. This is their first album out of four total albums. It is 52 minutes and 55 seconds long. It went three times platinum in the U.S., which means it sold over three million copies Jeez. in the U.S. and sold over five million copies worldwide. And I have listened to it well over 100 times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, so, yeah, they, they went platinum fast, too. So speaking of numbers, I also heard that their original demo tape was something that they sold it as a cassette. They made 5,000 cassettes, and they sold them at their shows before they got the record deal. And and they sold out of those cassettes like really quickly on the path to making this record. So it has it had like seven of the songs that ended up on the record were on that initial sort of like you know demo, demo. kind of thing, right? If I went and saw these guys, and Phil, you're right. I've seen the videos of them like pre-fame playing. There's one of them playing in like a record store. I think it's like a month before this album comes out or something like that. And they are destroying it. And everybody in the crowd is just like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on the here? What am amazing. I witnessing? Right. The one I saw is from October 23rd, 1991. And they appear to be playing in some kind of like, it looks like they're playing some kind of like college. Oh, outdoor. Yeah, it's a community college. Yeah. yeah, like yeah, like they're playing like an outdoor event, you know, like Under a barbecue. A Right. Dude, yeah. Yeah, and there's like there's like one guy or maybe two guys that are like going insane the entire time. Like what (laughs) am I witnessing? What the hell is happening here? Yeah, exactly. This is something. This is something. Something's happening here. Yes. We're gonna take it. Pretty amazing, honestly. Like we've talked before about first track, first Oh yes. Yeah. This is I mean Number one, a mission statement, yes. Just like, I am here, I'm a bomb thrower. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to stir some shit up. But then also, they just come out with that, like, you know, that the buildup into the 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 bomb track riff is so good and it's got so much pocket that i feel like defines yeah. this band in oh, yeah. such a way that other metal bands don't have it's funk there's so much funk it, in their sound it's a yeah i man. think in a way that was to me that was the great musical innovation although i think there are a few and one of the things i really liked specifically about bomb track i mean you're right it's a perfect opening to this album absolutely oh, it, perfect it rips i have i have complaints coming by the way but it is this is perfect and I read or heard Tom Morello say that he wrote that riff. I think he's talking about the main riff of the song, not the literal opening riff, but I'm not 100% sure. He said he wrote it when he was 19, recorded it on his Radio Shack small tape recorder. It probably wasn't even that small at the time. And then saved it for like nine years. Wow. Waiting for the right moment. And fuck if it doesn't rock. Because <laughs> he was in bands all through that period. Yeah. He was not like this. He was like, well, when I form a first band, I'm going to use... No, he was playing music that entire time. Definitely. And, you know, before we get too far into this, we have to just acknowledge, right, the amazing presence, thinker, musician that is Tom Morello. To me, he's the person that is most... He he stands out in the, in the history of this band. To me. I, he's just so innovative in so many ways. Adam mentioned his noise solos. His guitar sounds like seven different instruments on some of these it does, tunes. Yeah, yeah. And yep. they had I heard that they had to make a point on those early liner notes 
and in interviews of saying no synthesizers or samples were used on this recording. This is all yeah. basically Tom is what they mean. Mm-hmm. Finding new ways to make the guitar sound different. I would 100% agree with you. He is like, um, we've talked before about the oblique thoughts that you have to have to even approach an instrument and say, I'm I, normally I use a pick, but instead I'm going to use like an Allen wrench that he famously uses on um, uh, People of the Sun. That mm-hmm. oh, like get the hell like out! Rubbing that's an Allen that's... wrench on Dude. the wound strings. It 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 comes down to something that Allen talked about before, where it's like I get high and I'd sit with a synthesizer and I'm like boop doo boop boop boop, <laughs> and I'm like that sounds pretty good, but it doesn't. But he does it, and it actually does sound good. Like he finds a way yeah. to be like, no, this is I'm going to incorporate this into a song and make it really sound good. I'm coming from that angle of like, I can focus really in on just this one particular part and do something super weird and then pull back and incorporate it into a song that's just a real song, you know? He really set out to sound different. And I think in that sense, he may belong in the lineage of guitar, of the very few guitar players who really changed the instrument. Guys like Jimi Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen who Mm -hmm. sought for something that was really felt, if not completely new, then at least took it farther than it had ever gone before. In this case, I think the Van Halen comparison is actually pretty apt because realistically, you can't mimic this. Like, there's no way to, like, take what he's done and really, like, bring it into your style and then have that also just be your style. Have it not being, like, knocking him off. Like, how many people have you ever seen really do that Eddie Van Halen neck-tapping thing in a way that you don't feel like, uh, like, it might be cool, no, but, like, it's not. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it like. Was, Eddie. Yeah. There was, like, a jazz way to do it. Stan, yeah, that he guy Stanley Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But, but, no, no, but you're right. a totally different yeah. way. You're right. When I see guys starting to do the neck-tapping, I'm like, oh, he's doing the Van Halen thing. Yeah, right. I don't necessarily see a guy shredding a blues rock solo and be like, he's doing the Hendrix thing. Yeah, you know? like, like I, I, I think these sounds are amazing, um, but I do like I, I think that comparison is apt because there's not really anything you can do with these sounds other than say, now I'm gonna flip the Tom Morello switch and use like the sound he used in Killing in the Name or the sound he uses in Know Your Enemy. Like I'm gonna use that yeah. sound, that idea now here. Yeah, I would. I want to point out get, getting us back to bomb track here. Um, yeah, we still on bomb track. I was still on bomb bad track. things about bomb track. <laughs> still on bomb track, and you know, let me listen, tell you what's I wrong have, with bomb track. I only got one <laughs> thing wrong with bomb track, and that is apparently, I guess, uh, Nana Cherry ghost wrote some of the lines. She's like another funky radical bomb track. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the worst line on the album by far right. and it's in there so prominently so early on in the album but like this is post Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles people don't say funky radical man right. like come on get better Zach but we'll move past my, that my only complaint and this this might even sound crazy my only complaint is that like they bring it in real low for the first 14 seconds you know 15 seconds and then it hits real hard and it's almost like they want you to turn the radio up like, oh, is this broken? Tricking so, you, right. so when it like comes in, it crushes you. I think they could have gone for it Blow even harder. I think they could have had a wider range between the <laughs> intro sound and the you know bring that shit in. <laughs> I think I think they had another ten percent they could have squeezed there. They make a deal with Radio Shack or Crutchfield to blow out all the speakers and <laughs> yeah. all the teenage cars across America. 
One thing I will point out as well is that uh, I, I pulled the lyrics for this album into a doc, and the amount oh of times that it just says, uh, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> he does that so much, uh, and it fits, but when you see it written out, you're like, oh, come on, man. This is such an exercise in writing a series of vaguely anthemic phrases and just repeating them until it's to see if they work, to see what sticks. So like the, 30 times, by the way. 30 like times. The outros, the outros of most of the songs are three words repeated 30 times. And, and listen, and when it works, it oh, really totally. works. <laughs> and when it doesn't, it's horrendous <laughs> and, and cringeworthy, in my opinion. There is a, a genuineness to the anger that I think does come across. Um, in this album, generally, I think... It could have come. It could have been a lot more cringy if they didn't seem like they were like actually really, really that into it. Off. Yes, yeah. Yeah. you're right. Like Limp is not really you that. You feel the authenticity off. big time. Yeah. Well, that's why it's hard to believe their rage on future albums after they're millionaires, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't it just yeah. naturally harder? <laughs> it is naturally harder. Their their subsequent albums are really good, by the way. Evil Empire is a fantastic album. the The subject matter evolves with them well. You know, that, that song Down Rodeo, where he's like, you know, I'm rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun. People ain't seen a brown-skinned man since their granddaddy bought one. Like, that's a great song. It's a great line. He's basically like, I'm a rich guy now. And you're like, whoa, there's like rich brown people? What the hell is going on here? And he's sort of like, I'm, I'm freaking out the squares again. But right, see, you nailed it. That's when, you're right, they have more of those in them later in their career too. But when it really works is when they pair an excellent rock and riff with a good line that he gets off. But not not yeah. all the lines are as good as that. 100%. Right. And nor all the riffs. Yes. Not, they're not all funky and radical, I would say. <laughs> Rob, I forget if it was you who was mentioning in a prior podcast or one that has yet to be released or, or what, but you were mentioning how in the studio can be difficult because the end product that is being conveyed is usually not what's happening in the studio, mm-hmm. right? It's it's the drummers alone, but when the whole song comes out, it's this thing. These guys have such an authenticity that it feels like they were all in the studio just pissed off. Shirtless. And it, it comes, yeah, right, shirtless, playing the guitar, <laughs> just spinning around the room. Like, I can't picture Tom Morello in a shirt sitting on a chair <laughs> playing these for the studio no. cut, you know? Like, he's, like, spinning around the room and... It's it's super authentic that rage. Yeah, I wonder if they got themselves in the mood by like posting pictures of George H. W. Bush around the studio, all around or... the. <laughs> right. Well, listen, McDonald's, Cargill, Adam, you make a good point, and I I I think this is something that has to be mentioned. That this is one of the most flawlessly mixed and produced Ooh. albums. Oh yeah, of all yeah. time. The fact that you have. And in the room band sound plus separation enough that you can hear every single separate symbol. You can hear when he's switching strings on the bass, which string mm-hmm. he's on. Everything comes across crystal clear. It is yeah. a masterwork. And for an album that is super heavy, the guitar is not that distorted. Agreed. If you listen yep. to it, it's slightly overdriven, but it is so well, hard. So you know where that comes from? It comes from the bass. 
the bass is fuzz bass. When all, when the kick in comes in, they fuzz the bass out, and that's what makes the guitar uh, sound. Okay. You can tell the bass is split, right? Like you yeah. can hear like a real, you can hear that grind, but you can also hear like there's hear like the a clean. snappiness that's yeah. retained, yeah. right? So I I watched that um, what's it, Rick Beato? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He did the breakdown of Killing in the Name, and that's what really t- tuned me into that. He's like, listen, during the verse when they want you to be able to focus a little bit more and pull back, the bass is, is pretty clean. And then when it comes in, mm-hmm. they put the fuzz on top of it and it like, That's it's awesome. a step change. And, right. but, but it allows the guitar to be clear and not muddy. And I'm, I'm stealing this. Like that is a hundred percent something yeah, I'm going right. to steal. It's just like, don't, don't <laughs> blow the guitars out, blow the bass out, get the yeah. fuzz on the bass. Sure. That's badass. It, I think another another thing they do here too though is they definitely do the like the ZZ Top guitar stack, right? Like if you listen real close, sure. especially in headphones, you'll hear when a lot of things kick in, the guitars will sort of like fill out from left to right, right? Like during a verse, you'll you'll feel the guitar panned to a side, and then when it kicks in, it'll it'll stereo on you, right? But it's ultimately often just like a guitar being double tracked, right? And it sounds great, it sounds fucking great. <laughs> I think for additionally to all that, I agree with all that. And it's in that sense, it's sort of representative of that 90s rock style of production, which takes noisy, raucous bands and makes them feel a little more crisp and contained a la Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and stuff, but in a different, in a separate way. Because I think the the other secret ingredient is is the writing. It's just remarkably crisp. We, yeah. we said that in the early live shows, you could already hear the arrangements that they would then go on to record or on the demo tape. Mm -hmm. They had a really good idea of how to create dynamics within these. We've talked about the box that they put themselves in. There's not tons of changes in these songs. It's not about that. It's about the dynamics. And the bass clean to fuzz thing that Tom just mentioned is, is one such dynamic element that presumably they added in production. But I think even on the writing phase, they already had a lot of those dynamics built in. I would not disagree with you on that. I I just wanted to throw out some credit to the the guy who mixed this album a guy named andy wallace who also mixed nirvana's nevermind he mixed slayer's rain and blood and like a bunch of slayer's album of slayer albums he did that toadies album rubberneck jeff Buckley's is that Grace. the one with possum kingdom on that it? is the one with possum kingdom on <laughs> that's it. on nice. rocks <laughs> and then of course the crowning achievement of any musician's career he was the mixer. Miley Cyrus. Limp Bizkit's $3 <laughs> oh, bill, y'all. no. Oh okay. Talk about the highs and lows of okay. 90s rap right. <laughs> Let's listen. This is, I think, I think there are two primary criticisms that you can levy against Rage Against the Machine. And I know them well because I had previously been such a criticizer or complainant. One is look at all the bullshit they spawned, a la Limp Bizkit and the rap rock genre, which has mm. many terrible... Kid Rock. Yes. Kid Rock. Yeah, Many right. Many terrible things associated with it, let's say. But it's not fair. You have to look at it contextually. This was truly new at the time, at least to, to, my, to the best of my understanding, as an avid radio and M- listener and MTV watcher at the time. This was and really Fred new. Durst fan. This, this is the equivalent of Pulp Fiction, which then spawned tons of pretenders of varying quality. But that's, it's not fair to judge them by their successors. Number one album, number one song in the uh, in the country, by the way, uh, in November of 1992 when they released this, 
Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. That's a kill. Uh, cannot be more diametrically opposed <laughs> in terms again. How many times does she say uh in that one? Uh. <laughs> and, uh, uh. Can we please do a mashup of that over top of Oh, you know who else had a, you know who else had a number one song in 1992? Mr. Big, To Be With You was number one oh, in 1992. So good. So good. Baby Got Back was 1992. So like, but think of those songs. Yeah. They don't hold up this way. Maybe I will always love you, but Oh, I was going to say Baby Got Back. Baby Got Back. <laughs> End of the Road, Boys to Men from August to November was the number one song. But this is not a well, you know, there's 14 other bands that sounded like you guys. That right, are all, right. These guys, you're you're right. It was a seismic event in the Babyface probably didn't consider working on this album. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he probably, you know, like, I mean, All for Love by Color Me Bad, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. Like, oh my God. those seem, those just seem like of a different era. This doesn't feel like 92. This feels like 98. You know, I'm too sexy. Even as a kid, I remember hearing that song and thinking like, this is like a bit, right? This is like a Saturday Night Live skit <laughs> yeah, or something. Totally. Like, what is this? And somebody was like, this is music. And I was like, this no, is what, This is what Europeans <laughs> no, like. No, no, it is not. <laughs> yeah. that's Yeah. When you said SNL, I thought Dieter, Mike Myers doing Dieter from Sprockets. <laughs> <laughs> Touch my monkey. <laughs> now uh, we must dance. I thought about Sprockets. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the second track on this album, The Undeniable, Killing in the Name. say about that (laughs) look if you're if you somehow don't believe in this record by track two like what is wrong with you you don't actually like rock and roll you just don't yeah (laughs) this song rocks so so hard hard. yeah it is like unfathomable that something could rock harder than this i I agree I beggar you to go out and find me the riff that rocks That's, harder than this. This might be number one. It really might be in the pantheon <sighs> of is, all songs. Is, yeah, yes. man. So Tom Morello said that he wrote this while he was giving a, a already very established L.A. musician who was somewhat successful, giving him a lesson on how to work and drop D. And he, so he dropped D, and he's like, see how it kind of changes your position on the fretboard? He's like, he's like, 
Hold on for one oh, second. Hold, <laughs> hold on one second. <laughs> went over and recorded that and came back to the lesson, like didn't play it again. He wasn't like, you know, he was like, definitely, I'm not going to give you nobody's that. Nobody's stealing this, yeah. <laughs> that major minor. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it does like a little like, it's it's kind of more like a jazz line than anything. It does a little minor three, major three into like a dominant seven chord, right? It comes off totally differently, but it's definitely the kind of thing like a, like a bebop guitar player would play in a very different context, but I love just let's let's focus in on the anecdote of him getting it at the lesson, taking a moment, pausing the lesson actively, and his presumably his source of income at the moment, and recording it, <laughs> which wasn't easy. It wasn't like the phone was next to him, right? He had to get the Radio Shack tape recorder out, and then bringing it to practice basically the next day is what I heard him say. That is that's the, the that's the workman's attitude. That is that's the discipline that it takes to be a, one of the greats. I think. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we we've talked a lot about Tom Morello, and he is an amazing guitar player. He he really is. He's a very good guitar, very innovative guitar player. But oh my God, their rhythm section is so damn tight, dude. It's they so. Are. I would tight. if I if I was Tim Comerford. And he comes in with this lick, and he's like, let's play a song with this riff. I would have been so excited. I was like, oh, my God, this is going to rock so <laughs> damn hard. Gonna this is going to be so amazing. fun. Yeah. It's not- you know, you guys skipped right to the riff. We didn't even talk about the first 30 seconds and the dark ominousness that leads up yes, to the it. Yes, the evil. Cause, Bone cause clicking the, the... sounds. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I always think Stereo of Stereo flanger. As... This is the song that sold 10,000 Digitech whammy pedals. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes! Uh, I was going to mention 10, the solo. Best use of the whammy pedal. Unleash right? them on the unsuspecting ears of bandmates everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Did you own so, one can of them, we talk, Can we talk about the last note uh, in the yeah. solo and the doom that uh, it, in, yeah. it, that it inspires? Oh, man. Phil, you are right that we should not have skipped over that intro because I actually do feel that the intro is foundational to why this song kills because it gives you something to drop into. If they just started the song with one, two, three, four, it like it would be cool. Don't get me wrong, but that drop in gives you this like yeah. that's what that's what makes your head start nodding. When you're like, oh, I'm kind of going along to this, and oh my god, it's the naughtiest. <laughs> like I yes. feel like I if I. If I was in a car accident and I had one of those like halos on from like shattering my vertebrae and this song came on, I'd still be rocking. I'd still be doing this. Trying to I got it, I got it. You you're so right. The 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 older I get and also from the music experiences I've had, I the quality I appreciate in bands more and more is patience. They have the patience throughout this record, but that opening is a great example of just letting it lie so that you have something to drop into. You're already starting to headbang before you drop into that part. But by the time you're into, in, yeah. because it's built up. It's like the tension and release thing that bands like Pink Floyd have perfected. I think this band does it just as well, just in a totally different genre. 
And my observation, I think you guys would agree that our experience writing and playing music, it's remarkably hard to do that, to just stay on a part for that little extra bit of time and not feel like you have to move into the you're, thing you're excited about. You're anticipating about. that you're, yeah, you're anticipating your audience is going to be impatient and get to the riff, get to the riff, get to the riff. It sort of reminds me of like uh, how like a pitcher or a, a goalie must feel, right? In sports, right? In that like context doesn't matter. It's just like throw the next strike. Just like, you know what I mean? Just make the next save. Like just play your part. Don't mm-hmm. just stay focused because also around the other side of that is you can sort of lose yourself in that, like that groove. Right. But that doesn't work either. Right. Yeah. Cause like if you don't hit the change, it also ruins the magic trick. You got to right? time it. Like, gotta time it. Tom, Tom Morello has stated, and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that, you know, strokes himself off all the time with how great he is or anything like that. He actually seems like kind of a, he's an aware guy. He's not like, no, my songs aren't even that good. But he's he not just like, sits oh, around the best. Mustard and bread sandwiches. <laughs> anything no. else is a luxury. <laughs> but he is, well, he has stated that he's like, there is no experience in the world like when the riff for Killing in the Name kicks in at a Rage concert live. Like that build up at the imagine, beginning, yeah. and then when it kicks in, he's like, people just go nuts. Like I it is insanity. It. Yeah, <laughs> give yeah. me the drug. If you have a drug that could simulate that, I'll take it right now. I'd probably pay like seventy five bucks just to go to like. Just that tune. Just to go play, see them play. <laughs> playing <laughs> this, pl- playing this also rocks. We used to cover this, and oh my god, Adam, you used to do it this. Is in, yeah, it yeah, is I hear more about this. <laughs> Dude, this this song. For, we used to do this uh, end of the night, like last song, like as they're turning the lights on, and people would just go crazy. And it's so there's so much energy in playing it. And there was one bar in Philly. It was like a cop hangout, and they wouldn't let you play Rage Against the Machine. Like the manager would come out every time we were there and be like, "You remember, no rage. You can throw your asses out." Yeah. Wow. You got it. Thanks. Yeah, man. For the audience's benefit, I want to just remind everyone that Adam played, fronted a cover band for a number of years, and was playing what over a hundred shows a year, something like that. Adam, more than that. Yeah, yeah. So you really know. I mean, I just think that experience is important to bring to the fore, particularly as you spoke about. I do want to get deeper into you handling the ending of this song at some point. I'm really curious how that went (laughs) down. I would also like to point out that Adam and I were on our Catholic high school's mock trial and I believe model UN teams to give you an idea of just how, how, uh, you know, into the machine we were at that point. So in this... In this iteration of my cover of my cover band, I was actually playing keys and guitar in this band, so I was not actually screaming the uh, uh, four it. and a half minutes of of f u. Got over it. it. Okay, so. that makes way more sense. Because an astute <laughs> listener who didn't know us that well, but an astute listener may have noticed that some of us here curse like sailors, where Adam <laughs> assiduously <laughs> avoids it. I noticed. Uh, well, but then even the fact that you said you played it last of the night, it's fuel for the fire that you knew Oof. your whole goal as a band was to try to figure out how to rock them the hardest. Yes. And end Drive it. them crazy. And yeah. this was yes. last. And it, and it belonged last. Yeah. How do you follow this? If you're if you're playing and you're like, okay, we're done with the killing in the name. And now we're going to do, I don't know, Eric Clapton's cocaine or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Get off the stage. Uh any uh, any final parting comments on again what I just what, cannot 
Ooh, killing in the name. We talked about briefly. We talked about the whammy pedal. Adam, you want to talk about the Dracula part? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. Just the, just how tasteful it was for him to end on that. Yeah. Whatever note that is, whatever key it's in, it is just hyper doom. So that note, that note is definitely the that's definitely the major seven, right? But it's like it's like a melodic minor right so it's like it's in the context of a minor key so that's what gives you the dracula vibe every time right like that always gives you that feeling i want to point out though that this really is a really creative use of the whammy pedal because it's not what he's doing isn't that complicated a lot of it is like uh like da 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 it's really every other note in a scale but he's using the two octave feature and he's just mm-hmm. rocking it like quarter notes, basically. So you're going from like, you know, basically a, the note you would play while fretted. And then you're whammying up two, right? Like two octaves. And then he's sort of, he has that syncopated against the rhythm, right? So you're on either side of it. And then at the end, he goes completely bonkers, right? And, yeah. And, and, but, yeah it, but it really, it's not that complicated if you can learn to listen past the actual pitches right (laughs) right and then come back and apply the whammy pedal after uh but it is really cool we should say too for we're all intimately and perhaps sadly familiar with the digitech digital whammy pedal but maybe say a little bit about how it works exactly you kind of just yeah yeah sure okay so a digitech uh whammy pedal is a guitar pedal uh yeah popularized by Tom Morello. Uh, Tran Anastasia from Fish uses one a lot. A lot of guys use them a lot. Um, it's also on Cakes. Uh, Going the Distance, I think, very famously uses one. Very cool use. So basically, it takes the sound of your guitar pedal, the input sound, and it changes the pitch. So in the same way that, say, you know, hitting the lowest string on a guitar open is called an E note, and then you, you put your finger on the third fret, that's a G note, it increases it three pitches, right, essentially. Uh, the pedal just does this for you. So if you go from the heel position, it's essentially exactly, you know, what you hear is what you get from the instrument. And then as you step down, it'll increase the pitch. Uh, it'll make it higher. Uh, and it has various settings that allow you to move through this and sort of preset ways that allow you to sort of... It has, listen, it has various settings. 99 of them are <laughs> alien noise. Terrible. Just alien no, noise. Just, like, no, no, the, I think, I think the, the salient issue maybe that Phil might have left out is that because it's a foot pedal, you're detuning the guitar. So you have uh, to be, yes, you, you still have to be pretty exact to keep the guitar in tune with this thing. And it, and it has limited use, as Tom mentioned, because even though, you know, the guitar has this foot pedal, and if you go not all the way down, you're going to be at some weird interval or if you pause in between or if you're playing a note in between when your foot's going down on the pedal, you're getting this terrible detune note. So it has a Correct. reputation as a noise machine, which it yeah, certainly you, can be. You almost <laughs> have to use the pitch bend rhythmically, right? Which is in and of itself a little. You're basically, you can swing up and down, but you can't really swing up and stay because the chances that you're going to be perfect on the t- unless you go to the very top and you know, like you mean yeah. bottom and top are the only two exacts everything in between is wishy-washy but either way there's definitely a learning curve just with the pedal <laughs> that most guitar players will not crack and bandmates will hate it yes yes i can i can attest to that that's uh, <laughs> i've always loved about the bass is that you have a tuning pedal basically and that's it and like everything else is just gonna they can just do it later guitar players have your whole board with everything <laughs> damn prima donnas <laughs> Let's move on to the next song that we're going to talk about. The song Settle for Nothing. 
is freedom from the pain of our home. Hatred passed on, passed on, passed on. A world of violent rage, but it's one that I can recognize. Having never seen the color of my father's eyes. Yes, I dwell in hell, but it's a hell that I can grip. I tried to grip my family, but I slipped. Escape from the pain in an existence mundane. I got a nine, a sign, a set, and now I got a name. Read my writing on the wall. No one's gonna catch me when I fall. Darkness on my side. So, Adam, Phil, do you guys remember when we did our first gig at Jam and Java in high school? Um, yes. Yeah. I had written yes, a song I do. called Hazy Sunrise, which Ooh, sounded kind of yes. like the doo-doo-doo-doo. It was terrible. It was an <laughs> absolutely horrendous song. And this is like a prime example of the bass players. Like, I got this cool thing. And uh, then it didn't go anywhere from there. Right. And they should not <laughs> yeah. have included it on the album. This song is terrible. There's zero payoff. They settled for nothing. They did. Yeah. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they settled for nothing now. This song, this song sucks. Yeah. This it's whiny as real bad. fuck. Yeah. The first, two ver- the first two verses are the same. They literally repeat the... One verse yeah. twice after just one chorus. It's not even like they do verse one, verse two different, come back to verse one. It's just the same words twice. To be fair, that's kind of their style. But when the backing yeah, track yeah, doesn't yeah, work yeah. as well, yeah. Right, it right. It really pops out. So particularly one of the reasons why I feel this song is a huge mess is that, you know, the the, the you need a payoff in the course. You need to have something where you you can have a boring part, but that boring part's got to be pointing you somewhere. It does not point you anywhere. Like the killing in the name pre-chorus, where it's like, and then you're kind of like, oh man, I'd really like it if you got up to that octave. And then they do it on the chorus. You're like, oh, they got up to the octave. That's a payoff. You're like, give me, make me want the note that I don't even realize just subconsciously I want this note and then give it to me. There's nothing here. This this is so unfocused as a song. I it's galling that not even a song that we talked about, but take the power back right before this, which is an awesome song. How oh yeah, much, much stronger, <laughs> much stronger, <laughs> and with really good, good like the cool bass that. Bum, 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 bum. I think the most generous you can be is they thought they needed to cool it down because there is this phenomenon on records like this that rocks so hard. I need a break. I need my nothing mm-hmm. else matters to feel right. like the other. Yeah. To feel like um, the next tune rocks again, you know. But, but the problem with that is that the problem with that argument is that the next song, "Bullet in the Head," could have just been that tune, because that tune comes in low, but it has a great chorus, and this album does not need to be fifty-two minutes and fifty-five. That seconds is true. Long. They yeah. could have pulled out five minutes of song, and it would have been fine. It'd been perfectly right. fine. And it would have been, yeah. in my opinion, a perfect album if they had pulled that out. <laughs> yeah, his vocal styling on this is a little 
grating too. He's trying to like, I'm picturing him like trying to like creep across the stage and be really, you know, uh, emotional. It just kind of comes off. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Not that they care what works for me, but. (laughs) Well, Adam, does this work for you? No. All right. Cut it out. I think you are their audience though. You know, they're trying to radicalize you, Exactly. Yeah, right. That's a good point. <laughs> if, did you vote for Bernie, Adam? If so, it worked. <laughs> There's at one point in the song, right? And it's almost like their their drummer, Brad Wilk or whatever Wilk. Uh, it's almost like he knew that the song sucked and kind of dragged because, like, <laughs> right at the um, it's like two thirty. They get to the second chorus and he's kind of doing this like dun 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 dun. And he busted a double time just for like a couple of, of hits, and you're like, "Oh shit, it's gonna go somewhere." And then he pulls it back again, and I was like, he was even getting impatient. He's like, "This song needs to go somewhere. I'm gonna throw a couple of extra hits in here just to make it feel like it's gonna go somewhere." And then maybe he got like a death look from Tom Morello, who's like, "Not yet." And he's like, "Oh, I'll pull it back." <laughs> I need to play my noodly pseudo jazz solo yeah, just to be super weird. It's weird because like this band rips so hard, and I feel like I've seen a lot of like emo punk bands essentially do their version of "Settle for Nothing." Like I've seen a lot of bands do "Settle for Nothing," right? Not literally, but you know the thing where there's like a doom riff and some guy just like screams regicide for five minutes or something. <laughs> <laughs> You have chosen regicide. If you knew the name of the king or queen being murdered, press one. Can we write that song tonight? Oh, yeah, it's a good one. I have an acoustic. I'm sure it'll be the same thing. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just, yeah, really, yeah, you make a great point here, Tom. It really, it really does. To burn, to burn five minutes. Yeah. Could just be nothing there. Could have just been nothing. Could have just gone right on to bullet in the head. for our little opening critique or our opening Twitter length statement. I was just going to say stink face all day. I feel like this album, for those of you listening who might not know what stink face is, stink face is a term that musicians make and you can picture someone smelling garbage or raw eggs or a skunk, but then they start bobbing their head. And that means that whatever you're listening to is friggin' badass. We call that stink face. And I feel like I just had stink face this whole album and, and specifically on this track, man, it just bumps, dude. It's just badass. Agreed. See, real in depth there. <laughs> so. I, I I do think the album suffers from being too long. Settle for nothing could definitely be lost. But in general, I would have just saved a couple of these tunes. I think this tune is 
is good for a lot of the same reasons we said the other tunes were good. But I felt my ears just getting fatigued with this band at this moment. And I didn't exactly want them to do the soft song. I agree. It wouldn't have fit them. But I could have just used the, the whole thing a little tighter. Just a little spoken word thing from Zach De La Roca in the middle there. Well, we got, no, we got plenty of that. I mean, maybe this isn't the song I would have cut necessarily, but I'm just telling yeah. you that by this point in the album, I'm starting to go, okay, I, I get it. Like, I need – they really front-loaded. The first two songs are basically perfect. I don't know. This just felt like another one of those. It's, it's good, you know, but – I felt that this song was the one where they were like, if we wanted to be – just an organic hip-hop band we could have been that that bass line and drum uh combo could you could just put cool keith rapping over that and it would have worked right they (laughs) they would have been a great backing track for anything the this the the guitar also on this track like has a very un-guitar sound right like in a very hip way like again like maybe to tom's point does sound maybe like a turntable or a sample or something. Yeah. Is that like heavy wah-wah on that? And that wow, wow, Is it like wah and uh, whammy? No, I think it's I think it's more whammy pedal. I think it's just, I think he's playing the low strings probably really high. And then doing that like double octave thing. He does that octave thing, the double octave thing a lot. Because uh, I think it gets glitchier, right? Like it doesn't track the two octave range quite as well. So it just sounds mm-hmm. glitchier, especially if you hit more than one note. Then you get that weird, like, you know, I don't know, it's just glitchy. Yeah, computer Computery. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, yeah it, it sounds like a computer yeah, I malfunctioning. Think, I think part of what he's doing, I'm not 100% sure, but I know he uses this technique that we haven't touched on yet, where he, one of the pickups is at zero volume and the other one's at full volume. And so he uses the pickup selector as a kill switch. So he's got the thing going full volume and then he's just using his right hand rhythmically on the pickup selector. So yeah, I I would like a tremolo, like he's doing like manual yeah, tremolo I would have guessed on the thing. Something like that was happening on Know Your Enemy. That was the only one where I couldn't like I couldn't figure it out completely. I'm pretty confident it's used on Know Your Enemy too, but I think it might be used in the beginning of Bullet in the Head, where it's just like the guitar's on full blast and he's just taking it on and off in a kill switch way. In this oh, like, very quick I way. think I see what you're saying, like. Oh, yeah, so he's using the whammy, but then he's, like, bypassing the sound, essentially. That makes sense, actually. That part. Yes. Instead of hitting the strings with his right hand or the whammy bar, he's using the pickup selector. And the gain is so high that the note is already Mm, sounding. Yeah, exactly. So it's on, essentially. And the neck pickup or whatever is at zero volume, so that's a kill switch. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely... It's another one of, I think, a technique he at least pioneered. I don't know if he literally invented it or, you know, he popularized it for sure. But it's a very inventive way to play the guitar. I feel like Eddie Van Halen was doing that with, like, the 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 one pickup that was removed from a guitar. And he was just sort sure. of Sure, yeah, yeah. and, like, there's definitely other uses. I mean, you can get that sound on literally any Les Paul, right, by just turning one of the volume knobs to zero and just firing yeah, exactly. through the, yeah, the, yeah. Like the three-way switch. But yeah, uh, Rob, I also agree with you, though, right? That like there is something about this that sounds markedly different than that. I, I want to point out just in this song at like 39 seconds in, so it's like very early in the song, and it's the bass is super far out front, and there's like a little bass flub in there that they kept in, and I, I love that 
for some reason. It's just this little like he's supposed to be like dun 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 and he kind of goes instead. He does like a little I didn't fret it all the way kind of fart note, and I like it a lot. Stood and watched the feds go centralized. So serene on the screen, you was mesmerized. Cellular phone sounding a death tone. Corporate that's called Tony. It just gives it a oh yeah. Yeah, he just slide. He just yeah. ooh, slides it up a little bit yep. and then brings it back to the riff. That's awesome. You know, I I hear that though. I feel like there's a couple of other records that have just like just like a little imperfection and add mm-hmm. something. Like once you hear it, you're like, it makes you know it was real. Yeah, yeah totally. I picture a real band looking at each other while they're doing right. these takes and not again five four guys in four rooms. Uh, certainly not something that if Would I was you call this your favorite to- flub, Tom. Is this your favorite uh, flub? I don't, know. I, I don't even know what my favorite flub would be. But one thing I would say is that, like, as a musician, it is hard to go back and listen to your part and have a flub in there and not immediately hate it and be like, I have to fix this. What the mm-hmm. hell? And then you just have to come to terms with it over time. So I wonder if, like, Tim Comerford came to terms with it over time or if he was just kind of like, no, I like it. Gives a little bit of truth, a little grain of truth on there. You know? Dude, he probably hates it. He probably has he probably a version. Of his, he probably has a version in his house that has it like edited, you know, so he doesn't have to hear it. Right, Whatever right. comes on in his own house. Yeah. Right? If you go to a dinner party, you're not getting the record album version. Yeah, the Tim yeah. version. Because he's blessed. He's blasting sure. this over dinner with friends. Yeah. He's like, I was gonna just just blast bullet in the head real quick. <laughs> Sitting around drinking wine <laughs> with your uppity millionaire musician oh God, friends. Really what? Funny. I said the squab was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's move on to "Know Your Enemy," which has become my favorite song of the album. Spoiler alert! I'm just gonna throw that out there. Let's let's bang this bad boy right now. <laughs> song is so amazing it says the best line on the album by far the line where he says the finger to the land of the chains what the land of the free whoever told you that is your enemy that is an amazing line and he do they do the thing that i feel like you hear it on like tribe called quest albums a lot of hip-hop where he did selective doubling of the line oh yeah yeah there's punch. a lot of selective doubling a lot of this. selective it's really doubling. cool it works so well. You don't get a lot of the selective doubling on 
a lot of like rock albums unless it's like a harmony or something like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like it works super mm-hmm. well though in this. It gives it that hip hop flavor to to bring that in and just make these more punchy. Like like this stuff need to be any more punchy. But there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great tune. It's definitely one of the best songs. I think it has some of the best riffs in it. It's got the Maynard collab on it. Yeah, And I think this is a great showcase. If you only had to listen to one track to appreciate Morello as a guitar player, as we've been discussing, I really think in this, he does it across the record, but there's just a lot of different guitar sounds in this one. My complaint is the very end. It's getting into slam poetry territory here, <laughs> Zach. All of which are American dreams, Rob. Yeah, we, it's like, we got it. <laughs> Noted. He does that a lot. Yeah. That's he a... is. Listen, I, I've complained about this many times before about how I get kind of annoyed by musicians who are like, what I have to say is super important. For some reason, I buy it from him, <laughs> and he definitely deals that what he has to say is super important. Right. <laughs> you know what it reminds It reminds me of some men also cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Interesting side diversion here. Again, this comes down to this sort of how do these pockets of famous people meet way before they're famous. Tom Morello, when he was young and living in uh, Illinois, like out, well outside of Chicago, was in a band with um, the guy who became the guitar player for Tool, Adam Jones, so um, where Adam Jones was the bass player and, uh, and Tom Morello was the lead singer. <laughs> and so I just find that to be weird. Like that the guitar player in Tool was also in a band with Tom Morello in in outside of a different like state. well outside of Chicago. Yeah. And then oh. they both became famous independently in LA. How does that happen? And then <laughs> and then the singer comes back and does this tune with Morello's yeah. band. Right. Well, I, I, I was under the impression it is interesting how people cross paths earlier in their lives, but I was under the impression that they kind of remained friends and that both of their moves to LA were not totally disconnected and they stayed in touch in LA. So meaning their rise to fame wasn't necessarily totally disconnected. That's a, that is a part of the puzzle that I did it, not have. <laughs> it's still a huge coincidence. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm simply sure. saying that they stayed, I think they stayed connected while they were in LA and like practicing as struggling musicians. Well, and I don't look at either tool who I'd like quite a lot or rage against the machine and say, one of them got famous because of nepotism or something like that. No, it's not no, like tool got a record not. contract. Right. It was like, well, Hey, and they, give my boys a contract. No. And they sound so different and right. they're both pioneers in their own way. So yeah. Yeah, wasn't saying that. Yeah, man. If you want to see a version of this song that rocks, the Glastonbury in 1994 live, this tune crushes. Oh, that's one of those festivals, right? There's James probably Keenan like 90 there as well. people there. It's probably insane. Oh my god, it's huge. And and Maynard is just like standing next to the drums for like you know four and a half minutes with a microphone, and then he just comes out in the last you know. 30 seconds and does that note where he just screams and it's so perfect. Oh, it's like rock. A, like a goblin. <laughs> Yeah, 
He does. He looks like a goblin. He's got like this weird pseudo mullet, uh, Mr. T weird thing going on but uh, also do yourselves dude. a favor and go and look at the picture that maynard james keenan has on uh on wikipedia um it is it, it is something something to behold i have seen that he's such a weirdo dude he's such a weirdo he looks like a magician <laughs> he looks like a really crappy magician you'd see in like reno or something like that <laughs> speaking of knowing your enemies i was hoping to get a little more information on this sort of half an anecdote I have about them playing Saturday Night Live and getting kicked off because yeah. the host, they were asked to play Saturday Night Live apparently and the host was Republican presidential candidate Steve Forbes or perhaps yes. he was running as an independent but he's like a <laughs> super rich capitalist. He's a billionaire. billionaire. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember yeah. that guy. It feels so like a really odd pairing. They got kicked off because, um, not necessarily because of Steve Forbes, they had upside down American flags on their amps, and um, the, uh, NBC came to them and said, "Our sponsors are not okay with this. Like, you have to, independent of Steve Forbes being the actual host, they're like our sponsors like are not going to be okay with upside down flags." rolling right out of a toyota commercial or something like that so you can't have that <laughs> so two so a thing i didn't know that i heard tom morello say was that that is the military symbol for distress yep yeah. so that is a that it has a meaning i mean initially i thought it might just be i don't think that's a widely known public meaning so it might just be seen as being anti-usa or something but it's a mil, it has a military meaning right. to it I guess my question was, why in the heck did Lorne Michaels book them next to Steve Forbes? That just feels like a recipe for controversy. Yeah, what did you think was going to happen here, man? <laughs> Maybe they wanted to, yeah, get some, put some asses in some seats. So on they Saturday did. Night. What year was that? They did, Hank. I think it was when the year this came out. 92, right? Or, or well, early 93, probably. Or early 93. Yeah. Yeah. Election well, yeah. year, yeah. It would have had to be 92, right? We should point out, no, too, no, no, right, no. that they're, they've, they've stuck with as much as possible releasing records leading up to elections so that's another way in which they're very overtly political so i think the end of that anecdote is that they did even though in dress rehearsal they took the flags down they put them up for the live show and then they only got and then after one song they got kicked out well apparently they didn't even get on camera though I, I just watched an interview with Tom Morello where he was talking about this. It was, it was actually it's an interesting web series where it's like Wikipedia true or false, and they ask you questions on your Wikipedia page and say is this true <laughs> or not. That's and funny. He explained that they're right before they came out, their roadies rushed out and put them on there, and then like the the crew from Saturday Night Live like rushed out, and it was like a big tug of war for these flags, oh, <laughs> like dang. leading right up Jesus. until the cameras came on, basically like ten yeah. seconds before they yeah. were live. Jeez. Um, and you know what? This would it would have had to have been for it would have had to have been for Evil Empire because ninety two was the uh, Jesse Jackson, Clinton, H W Bush, and then mm-hmm. ninety six was yeah. Dole, Forbes, Clinton. That was the that was the oh, okay yeah. I, I I just meant I think they timed the release even of, of this record and maybe at least one of the other records to come out right around the time and like I, I kind of Battle got the impression, of Los Angeles came out in '99 and Renegades I, came out in 2000. Which I got the impression or or maybe it's about them as a band like you know, they would kind of go through periods where they wouldn't play live or they'd kind of break up or go on hiatus and then get back together for a tour. Usually it's it seemed like that those reformations were about an election coming up where they felt like they had something to offer. Yeah, Evil Empire came out in 96. So 92 election year, 96 election year, 
2000 election year and yeah 99 for a battle of los angeles yeah it's great great point i didn't i didn't quite realize that they were trying to time it with uh elections almost like they're trying to be overtly political or something (laughs) (laughs) they're pretty overtly political uh let's let's bring it on home with the last track on the album and i feel like this was the track that people told me i when i before i had heard this album somebody i'm trying to rich i'm trying to for, i don't even remember his last name I probably shouldn't say it anyway but it's like this is the song you got to hear and played it in his you know hunter green suv that we were driving around with this big speaker system the song freedom <laughs> What do you guys think about this song? I think this is great use of double tracked guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain that further, Phil? I, I just think this sounds really, really thick and beefy and sounds great. I mean, it literally just sounds great to me. Adam, to your point, this is a great example of a song that rocks really hard and isn't that distorted to me this kind of just sounds like amp sounds it just sounds like a guitar a stratocaster plugged into an amp that's like up loud right and then and then done right, twice right. and hard panned right like all the, all the all the intensity really comes from the drums the bass and the vocal performance right yeah, yeah. the harmonizing guitars felt a little out of place with the rest of the album it i don't want to say it felt corny but it felt very, it's going to sound bad saying it, it felt very musical. And it just felt like this song is a bit it of the odd man out. through that section in a way that's like, yeah. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So so it's a little odd. I mean, it could, you know, deliberate. That's, Are you that's talking cool. about the... Yeah. It just felt a little odd. like Smashing Pumpkins for a second or something. Yeah, right, right. The uh, I like that this tune does does do uh, rim clicks. I think it's the only the only song on the album where you're gonna get rim clicks yeah, in the block. snare. Doot, doot, doot. Uh, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, cool breakdown, good dynamics. I dug this one. This if if I was your buddy though, this would not have been the 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 one song from the album that I put in front of you first. Yeah, no, it's it's low on my list of the songs on this album. To, as a go-to it was the first song i heard from rage against the machine i'm not sure if it was their first single or their first mtv mm. video or something but to me i was i think watching mtv still pretty regularly at this time and this is the first way that it came to me it was through the video and through this song and i just remember thinking these guys are really upset about something <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think it was correct to put it at the end of the album but i just i just don't think it's as strong as yeah, I and, and and maybe part of why they put it out there on MTV is the challenges with releasing some of these other songs as singles with, with the, the cursing and such or references to bombs or I, I'm not really sure what it is. Maybe the 
the cry of freedom here is just a little more um, fits with the acceptable corporate zeitgeist. When did Braveheart come out? Interestingly, Rob, this was the fourth single released, and it was released almost two years after the album came out. No kidding. Killing in the Name was single number one. Bullet in the Head was single number two. Bomb Track was single number three. And then all the way in August 23rd of 1994, they put out Freedom as a single. And well, this predates, this predates uh, Braveheart by three years. So oh, he goes full there. William Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, then I guess it's just my own gap. Well, like I said, I wasn't. I definitely didn't wasn't into this band when they came out, so I have no problem admitting that. But I'm a little surprised. I, as a 12 year old, you weren't cranking this I, in your room. I, just, with I thought I was paying closer attention to MTV. Did those other songs have videos that were widely circulated that y'all remember, or where did you hear the band first? I first heard the band from uh, Rich. Who's, again, I can't. I can't believe I can't remember his last name. But I also would have been 15 at the time. So it would have been closer to like '95 that I first heard them. A couple so years maybe after it was it like came a out. resurgence of the popularity from Freedom coming out as a, hmm. as a as a single. But I I would agree with you. I think the lyrics on this are some of the weaker lyrics on the album. That whole Inca Inca bottle of ink. Uh, I don't get it. The, one of the things I like about this album is that it is very straightforward. They are beating you over the head with their message, and I appreciate that. And it feels like he is trying to be a bit more subtle and oblique on this song. And it's just, this is not the place for it, man. Just just go and beat me again with your message. Wait, there are lyrics on this album? (laughs) (laughs) 16-year-old me listening to this, not realizing that it was political. It's just like, yeah, this rocks, man. I hate everything. I remember when it was like, it was... Like uh, like even going to see Rage Against the Machine was like a like a statement. I remember they they played Philly. It was during all the Mamiya stuff. Mamiya Abdul. Uh, oh yeah, which right, I think, right. I think yep. it's which is probably why the cops didn't. Yeah, you know, that cop bar didn't want us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good point. Teams, yeah, I think about uh-huh. it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think just cops generally don't really like album or songs where they are overtly called clan members. <laughs> 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 Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty direct. Hanging out with Ice Cube. <laughs> that, that's another thing. This came out the same year as The Predator, right? In the wake of the L.A. riots, maybe it, the writing might have been slightly less uh, influenced by those activities, but it felt very of the moment at that time. And another one where we have to sadly mention still seems extremely relevant today. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It says here that killing and name lyrics were not in the liner notes. All yeah. of the other lyrics were printed, but the killing and the name lyrics were left out of the liner notes. Which I feel has led to this weird phenomena where there is the official quote unquote lyrics that you can like find online, but they don't sound right to me. Yeah. I think they, they, what they say is those who died are justified for wearing the badge you're the chosen whites, mm-hmm. which I don't necessarily hear oh. that. I thought he said they're cloaked, cloaked in white. Yeah, I always said uh, for wearing the badge and your chosen wife. It's well, hold on, hold on a second. I, am I the only person that heard and you're cloaked in white? I thought that it was a, a white cloak. Isn't that exactly what the KKK like? How they yeah, yeah, yeah. That I, word? I, I, yeah, I, I always took it as clothed, not cloaked, but yes. 
Oh, oh I, 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 so there's, there's another way to think of it is like, and your chosen whites, like you're choosing mm. to wear white as opposed to you're the chosen whites. Um, hmm. Let me go to rageagainstthemachine.com here and see if I can find Get the official well, there, story. There are two different lyrics, right? He Doesn't he flip between two that are kind of similar? Uh, I don't know. That's again, I'm always, I always have a problem. Oh, dude, they're torn with Run the Jewels right now. God damn, I would love to see that show. That's um, our friend. Uh, our friend's going to go to that. It got rescheduled for 2020, I think, Tom. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Who's who? We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this particular song, again, it's it's not my favorite. But the one thing that it does have on it, which is that kind of like uh, that riffy bridge that I really like, that And I feel like that's not really on a lot of the other songs on the album. That felt like a cool kind of departure to me. And... Maybe I was in the mood for, or maybe I was queued up for something a little bit more intense when I heard this song for the first time. Because I remember it was this song was played for me, and then Killing in the Name was played right after that. And I was like, oh, well, one of these is clearly way better. And so I, I picked this one particularly because I feel like it gets a lot of praises. Uh, maybe it's a lot of people's vehicle into Rage, but this was... Not my favorite. Not bad song, but just it was kind of a little bit more home for me. But there we have it. We have only one thing left to do. I guess technically two things left to do, dear listeners. <laughs> Let's get to the voting. I am very interested to hear the opinions. Does this belong on the list of 1001 albums? You must hear before you die. Adam, give it to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, give it to me. Yeah, 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 yes, this definitely belongs on the, the yeah, list. It's, it, it's a no-brainer for me. I, I'm going to probably, once I get my bigger speakers plugged in, crank this album and play along to it poorly. It's going to be bad, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> and rage against something. <laughs> uh, rage against your taxes or something like that. Yeah, Property right. taxes, <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got a yes from Adam, yes from Phil, Rob. What do you got here? Yeah, it's a pretty much an unqualified yes for me. But I, I will say that I think there's a read, an uncharitable read of this, that is wrong. That looks at these lyrics and this rage as being really unsincere, as coming from some kind of privileged person's position. Yeah, you know, like a whiny teenager kind of rage. And I think you would do best to learn your history, know your enemy, if you will, and get acquainted with this, because it's not that. I do believe it's sincere, and thus it's it's absolutely worthwhile. And even though there's some indulgences here, lyrical and otherwise, you can't you can't call yourself a rock and roll fan and not listen to this. Yeah, you, you said it earlier, Rob. If you get through Bomb Track and Killing in the Name and you're like, I don't like this, you don't like rock and roll. And I'm sorry, you should listen to something else. <laughs> There's you should leave. a lot of right. great um, adult contemporary out there for you. Um, you know, Daryl Hall is still doing stuff. <laughs> Let me introduce you to Christopher <laughs> yeah, Cross. Poco album or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 100%. My, I want to play this for my kids. Um, <laughs> they're too young now, but at some point I'm going to play it for them and be like, I, I challenge you to have something that is that rocks more. What from your generation is going to rock more than this? I don't know if it is mathematically possible to rock more than this. 
You know, question, question, because this won't come up because it's on the different record. What does rally round the family with a pocket full of shells mean? <laughs> I mean, it's, it paints a picture, right? But like, what does that mean? It means, it means sa- save your ammo. This is basically what Tom's doing every day of his life. Saving his ammo. <laughs> And, no, you know, I, imagining himself standing back to back with all the members of his family <laughs> fighting off the uh, the hordes. I think that it is something slightly different. Um, in in the same vein of they rally around the family, in that like you are the family and you are being rallied around by basically fascistic t- police officers and other elements like that that have guns and ammo because. That Bulls on Parade is a reference to Bull Connor, the um, sheriff of, I think it was the sheriff of Birmingham, that was like famous for just people would go in and peacefully protest for, I don't know, like the right to vote and like buy houses and stuff. And he'd be like, oh, we got to beat these darkies into the ground and just sick the dogs on them and beat the shit out of people. And uh, he was famous for like, if you come to my town to protest the fact that I don't let black people vote, we're going to beat you to a pulp. And so that was where Bulls on Parade comes from. So I think that it's maybe a little bit more. Wow focused on you are being rallied around and not uh you know you are circling the wagons i could be wrong could i, be was, wrong. I just thought Zach rally always had a positive like support connotation what about a clan rally yeah but they're supporting each other <laughs> they're supporting <laughs> each other Christ. right it's happy for them right it's a positive thing for them rallying around I say that. they they rally around the family with a pocket full of shells either way it's, you know what, Phil? I'm just going to say racism. That's what it means. <laughs> okay. Right. Racism. okay, gotcha. Go listen to that that's other a, album, that too. Yeah, Evil, Evil Empire, Empire, is that on? That's a, that's a really good one. Yeah. So, four for four. All right. Do you guys think that we got it right? Do you guys think we got it wrong? We want to hear from you listeners. We have an email set up just for you. Not for all the scammers trying to sell us podcasting services that currently contact us. We have set it up for you, listeners. 1001 Album Complaints. 1001 Album Complaints at gmail.com. Write to us. Let us know. Is Do you think that Bulls on Parade is about um, underground matador fighting? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know. Uh, the only thing left for us to do oh oh sorry we also are going to have a playlist of songs on spotify to accompany this that you can listen to any songs that we've referenced that are not on this particular album and the focus list that we put together you guys will have all that to listen to so let's get to our album next week and we're going to do something a little bit different here people we're not going to pull out the albinator we are going to not randomly select an album. What? Everybody on this call, <laughs> despite how we've just been talking about how we loved hard rock, uh, are actually gigantic Beatles fans and have been watching the Get Back documentary. And so we are going to listen to Let It Be, which is not on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die list put together by the esteemed Robert Dimery. We are going to be listening Mm. to that album with a very unbiased and fresh eye. We're going to look at it in the context of music at the time, look at it in the context of Beatles albums, and figure out, do we think that was a snub, or do we think that that one belongs? The context of this documentary has really got our gears turning here, and so we all have a lot of thoughts and a lot of things we want to say about this particular album. So I'm excited for that. I hope you all are excited for that, too. I mean... Phil, 
Adam, Rob, do you think that we have, <laughs> you know, another hour of talking about the Beatles in us? I'm, I'm not sure it's possible. It, After thousands and thousands <laughs> of hours logged <laughs> and another nine hours invested recently in a documentary about them. You know, I, I'm, you know what, Rob, because while we're at it, I suggest everybody give a, a listen to Let It Be Naked Remastered, oh, for which sure. is like a 2012-ish release, which is like Paul's mixes, essentially, of the Let It Be sessions totally from 2012, agree. right? So I check that out, too. <laughs> Definitely corrects the mistakes on Long and Winding Road, production mistakes, that is. Listen, if you're still paying attention and think this is at all interesting, you could probably be our friend. <laughs> like, right away. Yeah. <laughs> you, you would want to send an email to 1001. Hanging, hanging on. It's funny, I remember over here. the summer when I was on the East Coast, um, we recorded one of these podcasts, and then I went and hung out with Phil at the bar, and my wife asked me the next day, like, what did you do? I was like, oh, we just talked about music. She's like, you just did that for an hour and a <laughs> half. You and just then you went to a bar and talked about music for three more hours? Didn't you run out of things to say? Like, not even close. No, never. Not even close. No. No. I'm sure we also drank beer. Oh, yeah, we did a lot of that, but still, you know. I Again, I feel like as we were leaving, we were still like trying to make points as we're walking to the car. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, totally. You're like, no, man, you got to put compression on the mix bus. <laughs> <laughs> so... Until next time, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. Anger is a boosh.